that's the main takeaway for me. It's like, it is really stupid to pursue this. And there's something that's far easier that has a higher success rate that has all these advantages that you can just jump on board and, and participate in. Yeah, it really is paradigm shifting. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? All right, we're talking buy then build today. This is one of those books I put in the vein of the four hour work week where you read it and it just opens your eyes. You're like, oh, this is an option. I like, I did not learn this in school. Nobody told me this. And now I'm mad at everybody. And this is the the path I want to go down. And this is something that you and I have been obsessed with for a little bit. Like, do you remember when you first read Buy Then Build? I remember reading a lot of similar books that led me to Buy Then Build. And I think Buy Then Build has been by far the best. But I think even when I was first introduced to this concept of acquiring companies, so it was definitely like one of, as you just described, a paradigm shifting moment where your entire worldview before this was like creating a startup or launching your own thing and being the hero. And this, I think, partly comes from, you know, following other big names and, and what you call it. It's actually our heroes tend to be these people that have started their own thing from scratch. But this is its own way of achieving that. In fact, much smarter, more efficient with better odds of success. So yeah, it's a definitely a game changer once you learn about it, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I blame the movie, The Social Network or The Lean Startup. Love the movie, love the book, by the way. But when you think yeah. of becoming an entrepreneur, you're like, oh, I've got to have this lightning in a bottle idea. I have to start it on my dorm room. It has to be a tech-based company. I have to raise venture money and it's got, got to go to the moon. That, that's literally what I thought you had to do. And then you read something like this, like, oh, there, there is another path. And I, I really wish I could have gotten my hands on it, but before, I guess earlier in my career and also the title, man, it's a good title. As someone who's written a book, titling a book is really hard and he really nailed it. It's one of those where you read the title, you're like, I get it. And I'm in within the first five seconds of reading the title. Yeah, it's. You're totally right. I think that build, that second half of it is, I think, actually the the secret sauce because you're not buying a company to keep it as is. The real reward comes after you build it, after you transform it into the ideal version or what it could potentially become. And that's when the real reward is. So it's actually telling you about how to enter. You buy and then your exit is after you build it. So yeah, it took me a while to really understand the true meaning of that. The more time I spent thinking about it, actually, I realized there's some deeper meaning to that title. Yeah. And... Well, we should give some background on the author, Walker Diable. And so you mentioned he had a startup early in his career that failed, correct? Yeah. So he had this well-funded startup that failed. It actually had all the, it should have been a success. It had the right people. It was extremely well-funded, the right market, all that other stuff. It ticked all the boxes, but it crashed and failed. Now, if I remember correctly, it was a software company, but it crashed and failed. And I think as he was just trying to recover past that failure, an opportunity to buy a company came across and he made that move. And after that first attempt at buying and building that company, he's done it several times and he's built this, what he feels like a repeatable process and a framework. And he's built, a, or I should say, he wrote the book around that concept. So 
at least that's what I know about him. And he's, he's a, there's several very interesting interviews about, you know, his mindset and it's, it's quite fascinating. Yeah. And after going from the startup world, he almost went to this, the kind of this private equity track where he just went on a tear of buying companies. And then he has Quiet Light Brokerage, which is a brokerage firm where you can use it to source and find deals of companies you want to buy. And then he wrote this book, which was almost a lot of people that have B2B companies write books for lead gen, but he did something much, much bigger than that, right? So this book put him on the map and put this idea of acquisition entrepreneurship on the map. I mean, anytime you can associate your book with a category where you're lifting a category, man, if you can pull that off, that that is something very special. Obviously, like Tim Ferriss did that with with lifestyle design. We see what James Clear is doing with the, the habits movement. And then he has an acquisition lab, which is basically an entrepreneurship or a acquisition entrepreneurship accelerator program where he will walk you through what it takes and train you so you and help you find your first company that you buy. And as I was doing research for this, I was like, crap, should Jonathan and I join the acquisition lab? It, it was the 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 landing page is quite strong. So he isn't someone that's just talking a good game. He has a walk the walk. And that, that's what I like because he brings in a lot of his deal experience into his book. You know, speaking of creating categories, isn't it like you're just talking about, you know, the whole startup movement and how that became popular after the social network, you know, obviously being startup. And then after that, I feel like several years ago, the whole bootstrapping movement became very popular, creating these lifestyle businesses that just replaces your income and gives you the freedom that you want because you're running your own thing. You don't have to give away a big portion to a VC. And then this is a very interesting and very different angle at building wealth, still playing the entrepreneurship game, but it's it's acquisition entrepreneurship rather than starting from zero entrepreneurship. And it's, it's a very fascinating, and he makes a very strong case for it. I think there's just one thing that he said that really stood out to me so that you can acquire a business for pretty much the same amount that you would like putting a down payment on a home. So imagine $65,000 down payment on a home with that same amount at a 90% SBA loan, you can buy a $1.4 million business. So it's like there are these interesting like perspective shifting, like either data points or just insights as a practitioner that he brings that like are really game changers here. So very fascinating. Oh yeah, it makes you think you you can play a, a totally different game. But it made me think I almost want to do this timeline of movements that emerged and people that rode them. Right? You have like lifestyle design. You yeah. have the bootstrap movement. You have the solopreneur. You know, with Justin Welsh and like Blake Amal that that, yeah. that you've got the fat fire movement. People that are riding that the whole creator economy and things there. But yeah, I feel like with that acquisition entrepreneurship, he's he's definitely up there in my mind. For sure. Absolutely. He's definitely the black bear. And now I'm seeing more and more people pop up and kind of, you know, evangelize that this is this is a this is a path for people. And and it's actually I think the the bigger narrative around it is you have baby boomers that are all racing to retirement. Uh, I believe all baby boomers will be retired by 2029. If I'm not mistaken, I could be slightly off on that, but, but there's like $14 trillion worth of net worth that needs to change hands. And a lot of these companies are either going to shut down or be handed off to someone. So the opportunity is right for, for finding one and acquiring them. And obviously, you know, writing that oh, acquisition entrepreneurship game. Yeah. And I'm seeing it, man. In my entrepreneurship group, there's uh, 
a group of founders that have acquired 10 companies and they're, they're making more significantly more of those companies than their core businesses that are quite large. So it's, it's something I see from the sidelines and we've started to do in a small way, but it's something that you and I are trying to do much more of. So as we go through this, what y'all don't want to talk about is obviously who's Walker, why is this book iconic, what we like about it, what we don't like about it, or what we would change, and then how we're applying this to our business. We've kind of talked about why this is iconic from this idea of category creation and acquisition entrepreneurship, how you could outsmart the startup game. But one thing like, it's easy to hear about that in an abstract way. Like, yeah, got it. Makes sense. Buy a company, don't start one. Until you go down the path, I don't know if you really know the pain of starting a company and just how not sexy and miserable and hard it can be. Like, obviously, with, with our service-based business growth head, it's like two steps forward, a step back, and a kick in the nuts, right, is basically the path that you go as you're trying to grow and scale even as we are trying to grow, start Handsome Chaos. So for people who know, we tried to launch a D2C brand, Handsome Chaos. And it's a dry shampoo pomade for guys, right? That can't be that hard. There's manufacturers. And we did a lot of things right. We made a website. We drove traffic to it. We sold a product that didn't exist. It worked. And they're like, oh, now we just need to go make a product. And guess what? Making a product when you don't know what you're doing is really freaking hard. And uh, we even gave them a product, like make it like this. We made it. And then the manufacturer's like, actually, your ball, your bias too small. We'll, we'll no longer work with you. We went to another manufacturer. Like, oh, this ingredient is too hard to get. We need to do a reformulation. Anyway, long story short, we're not doing it. It's, it's so hard. And with business, it's not just about being good at one thing. Like a business is so many different things. It's more than just marketing. It's more than just sales and customer service. And it's fulfillment. It's operations. It's all these things. And to like stand it up to make it exist is hard because you are default dead when you are startup. There's a 90% chance of failure. And now let's go this other path. We we bought into this company, Neat. We we closed the deal. And the next day, we're like, oh, we need to prepare for Black Friday, Cyber Monday. We make a campaign. And within two weeks, we made more money that month than they had for the previous six months. And it's like, wow, this is magical. When you buy something that already has fulfillment set up and they have customer service and they actually have inventory. And I don't know if I will ever start a company ever again. With that being said, Jonathan, I did just buy a domain yesterday. So, <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I'm a liar, but I mean, yes, it's hard to find these deals and close them. But man, once you get on the other side of it, it is magic, especially if you can find an ugly business where you can ugly in the sense that it's a beautiful cash flowing business. But for us, it's ugly if they're really bad at marketing and we can add on our secret sauce, then it's it's really exciting. Yeah, I know what I really love about this book is that he just doesn't make a case for acquisition entrepreneurship. He actually makes you feel stupid for even pursuing <laughs> the whole startup game. Because you just said you have a 90% failure rate if you start your own company. And even the best funded ones that have the right people that have the the like all the money in the world, like the ones like the one he started, have a 75% failure rate. If there's anything in this world, like if they told you, Jim, that you're going to get on a plane and there you have a 75% failure rate or like you're not going to get home, like you're not going to buy that, that plane, right? Like anyone with a rational mind, but we fall in love with our ideas and the the like the narrative that we're going to build something amazing. And we think we'll be part of that 25% that will, or actually even 10% that will succeed. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the main takeaway for me. It's like, it is really stupid to pursue this. And there's something that's 
far easier, that has a higher success rate, that has all these advantages that you can just jump on board and, and participate in. So that's like that, that was a big takeaway for me. Yeah. No, it's it really is paradigm shifting to use your words that I will steal. Those are very good. Okay. What are some of the key things that stood out from you that you're you're reading the book? You're like, all right, I need to pause the audiobook and write that down, or I need to get into the Kindle and highlight it, or maybe you're old school and you're reading it on the actual paper and, and maybe you put it down and think. What were those things that jumped out to you? Yeah, so there are five things that stood out to me. And number four, I think is probably the most important one. And the first one, obviously, is just like understanding the economics of acquiring a business, right? Like how much can you afford, like multiples, things like that, just the basics. That was definitely one of the main things that I learned initially. And then this understanding yourself as a buyer, it's like doing a personal assessment. What are your strengths, the skill sets that you bring to the acquisition and like just understanding yourself so that you can do, you can have a better match. The third one is understanding the types of companies that there are. You have like growth companies that tend to be more expensive to buy, their multiples are higher. You have stable, like almost always profitable companies that tend to be smaller, but don't have much of a growth opportunity. So like understanding those different options in the, in the marketplace. And then the fourth one, which I really love and the most important one, I believe is developing a target statement. And this is where I think we may have failed in the past, Jim, when we've discussed like acquiring businesses, even taking the first step. It's always been about like industry, like what industry are we interested in and starting from there. This was what, when I was listening to the audiobook the first time, really made me, like I had to pause and re-listen to this part several times. His approach is forget industry and approach and like looking for something that you're already used to. Think about like what kind of company, what, like, are you looking for a platform company or something that has high growth potential or something that is just a stable? Will you define yeah. what a platform company is so people know what that means? Yeah. yeah, so a platform company is, Let's say you want to buy a lot of accounting firms. Your platform company would be the first one that you buy, that you build and establish a routine or SOPs around, and then you acquire others to scale up from there. So it's like the first of many acquisitions in a specific niche, and that's and that's the platform play. And his approach is like really understand these different plays, understand your goals, understand what you bring to the table, your unique skill set, and then establish the target statement out of that that when you go out shopping, when you're talking to brokers or business owners, you sound like you know exactly what you want. And it's much easier to do your fishing for that company with this target statement in mind, rather than just industry, industry focus. Like I'm looking for an e-commerce brand that's too wide and maybe not the smart, and according to him, not the best way to approach this. And then the final one obviously is it's around going upstream. So instead of just going for brokers, I'm just say, instead of going for listing sites, which tend to be the leftover deals that no one's interested in. The broker's putting it on the listing sites, developing a relationship with them so that you get first dibs at any offers that come their way. And that's all about deal flow. But number four, target statement by far was the one that stood out to me and the biggest paradigm shift as I was reading this book. Yeah, and that was something where we, we've always been honing in on like, what is our target statement? Essentially, like, what's your investment thesis? And he had yeah. some interesting examples on his, and it was a, it was helpful as you and I have formed our own because his it actually reminded me of the Dondo investor a little bit. So for him, he talks about he wants companies that are basically not disruptable, you know, that they won't go away. Technology's not going to come in and swoop them. He gave the examples in the book of I want to buy buy a snowplow business, right? Guess what? It's always going to snow and 
North Dakota and you're always going to need snow plows or, or, or daycares, right? And with Zodondo Investor, it's very similar. By the way, we should do one on that, but where they love slow changing industries. They love actually distress buys. They do want to have a moat or competitive advantage. So it's a lower barrier to entry. And they love businesses that aren't innovators, but are just copycats. And they're just going to copy what other businesses are doing and, and do it well because they have either a moat or they have some sort of advantage with arbitrage or, or pricing. And that's something that as you think through this, it's very counterintuitive to a lot of the things I've been said when you're going into this startup culture of innovative, new, do crazy things right on the back of a new technology. And this very much goes against the grain of that. And as you and I have looked at things, we like what I care about is I want recurring revenue. I do not want to be in the business of always trying to hunt down new stuff. Because if you're in acquisition mode, oh my gosh, that's exhausting. I would not want to be Casper Mattress that's trying to find all these new people every year buying mattresses because there's no subscription mattress company for obvious reasons. For us, we're also looking at categories that are going to get bigger and bigger that are not declining. I do like ones that have some sort of a mode or unfair, unfair advantage similar to the Dondo investor. But one big thing that you and I care about is, is there a value add play where you and I could come in and we have this growth team that could add value. So if it's a company that's got great margins, great profits, and they have a website that hasn't been updated in 15 years, and they don't even know how to spell like CRO, sign me up. Like that's something that I, I get very excited about. And so it was fun to hear his investment thesis. I like compare that to Dondo Investor and then what you and I think through. For me, the other big thing is like how approachable this is because you hit on it with your first point of what it costs to get a business. Because you're approaching this, but like, like, wait, I can't buy a company. I'm not sitting on all this cash. But when you hear the economics, it's like, actually, you only have to put 5 to 10% down to buy these companies. You can use an SBA loan. You can use seller-side financing, which means the company you buy, they're essentially doing a almost a form of a loan to you. And if you want to buy something that is $3 million, you know, you only have to put 300,000 down. If you want to buy something that's a million dollars, you only have to put 100,000 down. And that is very approachable. I would almost go, I like, I would go as far as saying people shouldn't buy a house, go buy a company first. You know, it might make your marriage a little rocky, but I think that's the the move because that could be a, such a better cash flowing asset for you than, than, than a house. But that was my big takeaway was how realistic this is to pull off if you want to get a company where you're only going to spend a million to $3 million. Absolutely. And there are like a few rules that he sprinkled in there. There's one that stood out to me. It was like, make sure the business can afford to pay for the business. And I remember highlighting that because if you think about it, you want a margin of safety. And that goes back to the whole Dando example that you just provided. If you buy something with very little cash out of pocket, and it, business could definitely afford to pay for itself. You have a huge value add that on day one you could add and essentially improve the company, make it more valuable almost right away. You really have limited downside and you're buying something with established customers, with insights, market insights, the industry insights. They have infrastructure, they're bankable, they have relationships with banks or any or their vendors. So you're buying a lot and you're almost set up to succeed. You really have to do something catastrophically stupid to fail in those kind of scenarios. Yeah, I think, yeah, if they have their operations intact where you can come in and just add value, that's huge. Because another guy I know that buys companies 
Like he he really some people love turnarounds where you come in and you fix it. This guy is like, I'm not trying to buy a job. He's like, I want something that's already humming and working to where anything to add on is is gravy. As opposed to maybe other people listening, you'd be down to get something distressed that is a turnaround and you want it to be your your full-time job. But I think it's being very intentional with 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 how you think through that. The the other part was that was helpful was him going into due diligence and some of the advice he gave there. Obviously, you have the financial advice. He talked about interviewing customers, interviewing key employees, and even in the final parts of closing, going out and talking to prospects to see how committed they are to competitors and if they would switch. And so I thought that was really interesting because the devil's in the details with these deals. Like Jans and I, we would look to acquire a Shopify app. What was that, two years ago? And we were really excited about it. It's like Shopify app. It's a part of this new technology around live video that we thought, uh, and I think eventually it's going to be very, very big on websites. And we're like, oh, this is perfect. But as we started to do diligence and look at the numbers, we noticed some pretty glaring issues around churn. And we're like, we are basically buying a falling knife right now with, with this one. And it was tough because I think you and I both really wanted this to work, but the numbers were like, if you're going to buy this, do not do it at this value because there's not product market fit. And, and that was tough. But I do think that someone, if you didn't understand SaaS and if we hadn't have cried as much on talking to customers and understand how they use it and why there's churn, we, we might have not seen that and just fallen in love with the tech and, and bought the company. Absolutely. And one thing that it really highlights uh, or spends a lot of time talking about is about establishing a team, especially a CPA, for example, that can like reconcile the difference between tax returns and their financial statements and find the holes. And even an attorney, for that matter, that can really protect you and and the entire transaction from start to finish. And then lastly, of course, and it's not necessarily due diligence, but more deal structure around keeping the the owner or the previous owner around in some for, in some fashion like in an earnout deal where they still have skin in the game until the, the business stabilizes and gets to where it needs to be. So like these are a few things that he, he called out, but I think the team especially is, is critical. If you find someone, a CPA or an attorney that's been, has had reps in acquisitions or has helped other, you know, like during the selling process, they'll bring a lot of insights, what to do, what not to do and, and save you from a lot of heartache. So that's the pretty big. Yeah. And it also makes me think of Tiny with Andrew Wilkinson they pride themselves on how fast they close deals. And that's something that Walker talks about in the book is if you're going to do this, you need to be serious. You need to have your your loan lined up, your team of accountants and lawyers lined up and ready to go. Because, you know, at the end of the day, time kills all deals. So if you're fast, that can be an unfair advantage that you have. And even with neat, I would say we weren't that great at speed and it came at a cost of legal fees that were much spicier and more expensive than I realized because it was our first time doing this and we didn't know what was going on. And I'm probably asking dumb questions and having them go deeper than if I would have been prepared, that wouldn't have had to happen. And that's an an expense I had to take. But I think that's a good one. And then I saw this quote that made me crack up and kind of cry on Twitter from Brim Bishore of Capital Camp. And he does a lot of deals and he says in due diligence, know this, all businesses are loosely functioning disasters and that's okay. 
And it got me thinking, you have these small businesses, there's a lot of key man risk. There's a lot of dependency. There might not as be as much documented paperwork or SOPs as you would want. And you want to call that out, but it is a little bit of, of the norm. And so I thought that quote was, was kind of funny. Yeah, and that, that, that'd be interesting. But what's the next topic, Jim, that we want to hit on? It's like you said, what's it's like what we didn't like about- Yeah, what, what do you disagree with or did like about this? One thing, I think he shot this idea down a few times, and it's like the like the idea that you must bring money to the table. I don't think there was a single mention of zero cash out of pocket deals. Maybe that's something he doesn't believe in, but we know a few examples. Like the one that stands out the most to me is the Sarah bought at yeah, almost a $50 million business, if I'm not mistaken, for no money down because the the equity that she had to bring was seller financing and then the rest was was an SBA loan. And she managed to, you know, to get that transaction up and going. And then yeah, I think I'd say that's a big one for sure. It's definitely the lack of that. That he just he says, like, if you don't have money to bring to the table, this is not for you. It kind of kills that audience. He doesn't want to appeal to that at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, my, it's actually kind of similar in that I I do think he could have shown more of those creative deals. I know they're not as much the norm, but we've we've seen it. And we even try to pull some off where it's more on, on seller side financing or, or sweat equity. For me, I, I think this movement could be much bigger. It's almost similar to the lazy leadership blog posts, like why didn't that get bigger? And I think about it where I think like the floral work week, but that was a little bit more tactical for someone just getting started and had more of his personal story. If that would have been infused to this, I think this would have been even better and resonated more. So I wanted more of that that personal touch to it. But but all in all, it's a it's a pretty good read in my opinion. Yeah, I think another one that I can bring up is like his obsession, well, I wouldn't say obsession is the wrong word, but definitely I think he leaned more towards like the personal assessment in trying to determine what kind of company you should build or the kind of opportunities you should seek out. And the industry itself is kind of relegated to last place. That's maybe the last thing you need to look at in that process. And the more I think about it, like initially that's that's a very creative way of going about understanding what you bring to the table, the value added, things like that. But can you imagine us going from a marketing firm to acquiring a, I don't know, a metalworks company, for example? Like that's a completely different world. It might tick all the boxes, right? It could be a perfect high growth opportunity that's, you know, low, like high margin of safety, moat, and things like that. But it is definitely we're completely out of our comfort zone in that case. And we have to wonder if if that's something that we would pursue. And I think there needs to be an exception. I think more emphasis placed on industry to some extent. Maybe not as much as what we previously thought, but still a bit more, I think, would be would be necessary. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like he needs like a volume two or three that goes down that path. All right. So mm-hmm. final question. How do we apply this to our business and what we're doing? Like, what are the things that come to your mind as you read this? Like, okay, how can this help what we're doing? How I would apply this to growth it is actually following the steps that he prescribes again going through doing a personality assessment, understanding what we bring to the table or our value add. And I think we need to really consider that growth or growth it might not just come through, you know, organic growth or a lot of the linear paths that we think, but potentially thinking of like, you know, acquisitions could be tools that help drive leads to the business. That could be completely different businesses actually. And what we bring to that table would then be our marketing skills. 
It could be a business that's very good in its domain, has you know operations on lock and everything works. It's just that their marketing component is malfunctioning and we join forces to take it to another level. I think that could be another big opportunity as well. That would definitely take us out of our comfort zone. But I don't think the only way to grow a marketing firm is by growing the marketing firm. It could potentially be by you know doing other these adjacent opportunities. So and I think this is definitely the safest and most logical playbook because we have a lot to bring to the table. And this is probably the safest, highest margin of safety approach to do it. Yeah, that, that's where my head went. Like even people listen to this if you're running a company. At the end of the day, you like me and Jonathan. We're resourcing capital allocators, right? Your your time is a resource. How do you allocate that? Your team's time, the profits you make, are you investing in technology people or buying companies? And one thing that I've realized to be a better business owner, I need to go from this idea of operator to this idea of investor where, hey, instead of trying to grow the email service business of GrowthIt, what if we acquired an email uh, agency that all of a sudden hooks in an extra 200,000 or 1 million in profits per year? That could accelerate building out everything we need to to, to grow that part of, of the business. The, the other thing you said is not even uh, directly acquiring agencies, but like Neil Patel, he acquired Uber Suggest, which is a tool that gets an insane amount of traffic that functions as legion for his agencies. And that gave him a, a huge boost. And it really makes you think outside the box. But I think the first step this book did is stop thinking as like this day-to-day operator. Think of yourself as an investor and how you're investing and reallocating these assets, these resources. And it's a muscle that I think you and I both try to get more reps in because it's kind of a blessing and a curse. Like you're a phenomenal operator, but that could come at the expense of you're so good. Like, you know, how do you make sure you stop that that mindset? Like, oh, wait, what would the investor Jonathan do in, the, in this situation? So that's a muscle that I want to try and develop. And I think we could grow significantly better if, if we do that. Yeah, for sure. I think by far the cheapest way to grow is by acquiring things. And actually, there's this mind game I was playing earlier. Like, imagine if growth it didn't exist, and we're starting from scratch tomorrow morning. And to get to where we are, like, think through all the like the infrastructure that you'd have to build from scratch, the industry insight that you'd have to collect, all the market intelligence, the team you'd need to hire, and like the revenue that you'd have to slowly build. That would be like essentially take us how, like how long it's already taken us to get to this point. And if you went to acquire a business, you could literally get all of the bat, all the advantages right off the gate and and grow from there. So it, it definitely makes a case for it. You're going to pay for it in time and definitely in heartache and resources if you try to build it from scratch. But if you build or if you acquire something, especially one of these businesses that you know are up for sale, as I said earlier, maybe boomers retiring at a crazy rate, there's just so much opportunity there. And I think like there aren't enough acquirers. I don't feel like competition is there as much as, as we think. So it definitely makes the case for acquiring more than anything yeah. else. The, the, the last like big takeaway was how to get deals and how listing sites aren't the path. And as I talked to my founder friends that have acquired companies, they've all gotten them through their network. Whether it's someone who worked at a private equity firm and has relationships with people that sent them deals that were too small for them, or they knew somebody or getting friendly with, with bankers. So I just kind of say that because I love the idea of just hunting on these different listing sites, but those are kind of the leftovers. So if you're going to do it, it's you've got to roll up your sleeves and start to build those relationships. And that's something that 
even with me, that came in because they were a client of ours and they had a different brand we were working with. So I think there is something he said for like putting your flag out there like, hey, I want to buy companies and see what can come your way, hopefully serendipitously. And I think that's something we'll be we'll be doing more of this year. You know, there's actually, and I know you know this, Jim, a wonderful podcast. And Sarah, I forget her last week for some reason, but the lady who bought eggbarns.com, talking about the manual process she like had to take to get the the leads, not the deal flow, I should say. And she had targeted, I think it was a an X radius around Boston and hired a lot of interns to do that for her. It was very manual, a lot of, you know, it took a lot of time and energy and resources. But it's possible to do it that way as well if you don't have the connection. So I don't think it's to either have the connections or you can acquire. There are many other manual ways of, of getting the overflow and potentially finding one of these acquisitions. Yeah, I'll put the link to that one. Sarah Moore is her name, but yeah, she worked real hard to buy an, a carton company and is crushing it. But yeah, that episode was amazing. So if you're interested in acquisition entrepreneurship, I'll put a link to that one from from my first million uh, in the show notes. Um, but yeah, man, I'm excited for you to get to Seattle so we can work together. We're not going to get an office. We're going to get a, a sick houseboat on South Lake Union as our office. Anybody listening can come visit. We'll go kayaking together, but we're going to find a deal, find a business to acquire this year. So will it be a marketing agency? Will it be a snowplow company? I don't know, but it is going to happen this year, but good times, man. This was fun. Absolutely. And we definitely need to lose our acquisition virginity, if that's even a thing uh, this year. It's long, long overdue. We are ready for love. Okay. Awesome. Thank you, Jim. I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, Growthit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out growthhit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman. Are you a business owner in desperate need of talent, but you have issues finding good people? Or worse, you find the talent, but then they want you to pay them double what you have budgeted. Yeah, I know the feeling. This is where remotely talents can help. Imagine having a personal HR team that finds you A plus talent, and here's the best part, it costs you 40 or even 80% less than US employees. It's magic. So let's say you need help with setting up your social ads, your Google ads, email marketing, website development, customer service. Their team sources the top Ukrainian talent for you and they deliver three top vetted candidates straight to your inbox. It's a one-time payment and best yet, they give you a 60-day guarantee to ensure you're happy. Hey, if it doesn't work out, they'll find and replace the talent for free. 
Even better, 3% of all sales go to the Children's Hospital in Ukraine. At Growth Head, our agency, we've hired four people from Ukraine. I am blown away by the level of work we're getting. So whether you need a virtual assistant or a creative director, give this a try. Go to remotelytalents.com right now and start a conversation. See if they can help you. You really have nothing to lose.